become a disruptor, develop a mentality of finding a way, build a business, then scale it, then sell it, make multi-millions and live the dream, hey? Jonathan Barker built the Watch Lab. He sold it for millions and now he works for Kingsbrook and is a professional in helping people do exactly the same for their own business. Get a coach, develop an exit strategy, grow your business value and change your life. Let's do this. So in my research for this interview, I went online and I only went and found a picture of you shaking King Charles' hand. I'm unsure <laughs> if it was a king or a prince at the time. Yeah. Was he a king or a prince at the he time? He was prince. It's 2019, so he hadn't become King Charles yet. So why were you shaking his hand? So when we first started the business, we needed a £30,000 loan. What business was that? It was called The Watch Lab. It was a retail watch repair business. And it came about because in the 1990s, I was selling watches to the jewellery trade. And I realised that the way they did the watch repair side was very poor, very negative, very like, oh, we'll have to do it if we have to kind of attitude. So I thought, let's disrupt it. So my vision was to do it very differently. So I started The Watch Lab in Liverpool in 2000. But before I did that, I needed to borrow £30,000 for a kiosk and to and equipment and parts to repair watches so I went with my business plan uh, to four banks and the four banks said Jonathan great idea I can see what you're doing I'm sure there is a need for it but you've got no money you've got no collateral you've got no equity in your house and therefore we can't give you £30,000 it's too much of a risk but one bank HSBC said we think there might be a way so they contacted Prince's Trust Prince's Trust got involved, young person wanted to start a business, struggling with the finances, and they st supported us by taking a 70% of the risk for the bank. In other words, if it had gone pear-shaped, Prince's Trust would have paid £21,000 of the debt, and the bank only £9,000 yeah. of the debt. So that's how it went. So if we fast forward all those years, because we started with the Prince's Trust loan guarantee scheme, we got the opportunity of meeting King Charles in 2019. Wow. He and was, thanking him. And thanking him. And he was delightful, by the way. He was, he'd done his research. He understood the business. He talked about the business, talked about watches. Uh, he was just a great guy. Great guy. Well, there you go. I mean, there's a nice little mini story in that because it's, it, you found a way of getting the money. Four banks said no. We at HSBC, credit to them. They said to you, you know what, Jonathan? There might be another way. Yeah. I wonder if the, the listeners that are, in that position where they can't get money against themselves type thing, they, they could ask the banks, is there another way? There often is. And Princess Trust, I don't think they do that scheme at the moment, but they are there supporting um, young people who are in business or want to go into business and have great ideas all the time, so they must reach out to them. By the way, in the, right at the start of that, you said about disrupting. and Are you a disruptor? Um, in that sector, very much so. It had to be done differently. In the watch sector, yeah? In the watch repair sector. Without a doubt. So actually, you know, just for the viewers, right, this is a story of incredible success, really. Uh, a man that couldn't get the money for his business, built a business, went through pain, sold it for life-changing amounts of millions of pounds for you and your business partner. And now you're living your purpose. So I've got a whole bunch of questions to ask you on all of that, if that's all right. So... When did you start your first business? The, the, the one that I've just mentioned, if, it might not be in your first business, but when did you start it? So that was called The Watch Lab. 
And the reason it had to be the sector had to be disrupted is because, like I say, it was all very negative. We'll have to send it off. We don't do that brand. Is it waterproof? We can't get the glass for that. It's all that kind of negative talk that I would hear because I was selling watches to the jewellers, so I got access to the backs of all their stores. So I saw all that, heard all that, felt all that. And when I did my research, I realised that the watch repair parts of the watch and jewellery trade was the most profitable yet it was being left alone and not done properly. And right. the disruption came about because I thought it has to be done differently. So my vision was to take all the horological tools and equipments and things that you never saw that were the backs of all these jeweler stores and put them to the front. So therefore, you, the, the, the public could see their watch being repaired if they chose to do so. We right. wore white lab coats, so it was very clinical, it had to be. And we had a solution with a yes-can-do attitude for every single watch repair scenario and, of every brand that came to us. And no one else was doing it? Nobody else was doing it in that way. You, right. What's relatable in what you just said? You said, I saw this, I heard that, I felt this. There's lots of entrepreneurs out there that's seeing things, that's hearing things, that's feeling things. But then you said, and I turned that into a vision. Mm. And you pursued that vision, yeah? Not an easy thing to start because even though I had this vision of how I was going to do it, number one, I can't repair watches. Number two, I'd never run a business before. I didn't know what to do. And number three, I had to learn how to repair watches by hiring a watchmaker. So we started in Liverpool in Clayton Square Shopping Centre in 2000 with a 10-metre square kiosk in the middle of a shopping centre. The full figures weren't available for the shopping centre like they are now. So I spent days, weekends, and different times of the day counting, physically counting people going in and out to get the idea that it was busy enough for us. And then we opened in Clayton Square Shopping Centre. And it was an instant success. It was incredibly busy from the start with every brand of every, every kind of watch you could think of. It was amazing. There's a genius part of the the story that you said in there that might people might not have heard, so I'm going to repeat it. You said you didn't know how to repair watches, so you had to hire a watch repairer. The good news is you couldn't be the technician in your business, and you had to hire, hire other people to do it. Mm. You know, like if I was to, you know, get a restaurant, you know, because I'm I'm not going to be the chef. There's better people than me being the chef. So I love the fact that you did that. And which shopping centre did you say? It was Clayton Shopping Centre. Clayton Square Shopping Centre in Liverpool. Yeah, have you got fond memories back then, have you? Very fond memories. What's the emotion that you're feeling right now thinking back at that first store? It was the, it was so busy, so successful, that I had no idea how much it was making. I was working seven days a week. I was getting into Liverpool from where I live in Preston for 8.30, 8.20, 8.30 in the morning and leaving at 7.30 at night time, working seven days a week. The money was coming in and I had no idea because I was so busy in the business. You were busy in the business, the money was coming in. So first year then, what, what do you make? Profit. So the first 12 months in 2000, from a 10 metre square kiosk, we made £237,000 net profit. So over a quarter of a million pounds net profit 24 years ago. It blew my socks just, just, off. Just under 237. Yes. Just under two. Just under a quarter of a million pound net profit first year, working your socks off because you, you'd seen an opportunity, you'd heard about this, you felt it inside, you'd turned it into a vision, you'd followed through, you'd made it happen, you set up your own first store and you'd put the effort in and you were hard working, you were doing the seven days a week for all of that profit. What, how are you feeling right now? What's your emotions? Um, it's taking me back there. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the hard work, the fun we had with the, with the Liverpool people. The scouts are yeah. hilarious. They're fantastic. It was just great. It was fantastic. Who's your team? 
Liverpool or Everton? Uh, it's Man United. Oh, there you go. He's set up in Liverpool. He's a Man United fan. I'm from How dare he? Altrincham, South oh, Manchester, there you go. the there borough you. of Trafford, I might add. Hey, all my wife's family from Altrincham. Oh, there really? you go. Okay. There we go. So, all right. So that was the start-up phase. It sounds yep. nice. You were working your butt off. What happened then over the first, over the next five years? So knowing that it was very profitable and the disruption was working and we thought, can we replicate it? Will it work? If it works in Liverpool, will it work across the Pennines? Will it work in the South? Will it work in the North? Will it work in the Midlands? So these are the things we had to try. So the next one we opened was in Leeds. It was called Leeds Shopping Plaza. It's now Leeds Trinity. That was also a kiosk. It was very successful, but not as successful as Liverpool. Then we opened a shop in Preston, which is my hometown. So we had three then at that point, my brother, who I was very close to and I'm very close to, Jeremy, he was a multi-site McDonald's manager. Now, he had got to the point of 10 years in McDonald's and in 10 years at McDonald's, he used to get a sabbatical, which is three months off, paid. So he spent his three months working in my business and we decided that we could work together and he would like to be involved. So therefore, he then put money into his, into sorry, into the business from the equity in his own property kind of thing because he had equity in his house and that's how the partnership started and I also made my wife at the time a partner as well so that was it three ranches partnership we thought we could fly my brother had all the skills that I didn't have really he was highly organized in terms of rotors HR policies um, just the way branches should be run staff rotors all that kind of stuff so he brought a lot to the party then it didn't go as well as we expected. You know that you, there was a bit of a throwaway comment there, statement. We thought we could fly. I mean, this is, and it and it didn't work out. You know, I hear this. Uh, sometimes going into something, you can have excessive levels of optimism, and and sometimes the biggest financial mistakes happen at that point. They do, and that's exactly what it is. And it's it's not arrogance. You just believe you're doing something so right that it is just it's unstoppable. But it was. So unfortunately, we opened branches that were in the wrong location, wrong towns, wrong locations within shopping centres. We paid too much rent. We opened in Stockport, which didn't work for us. We opened in Birmingham Bullring in year two after it was first built. Wrong position. And we overpaid on rents. And at the same time, we promoted people as well to be area managers because we thought we were going to fly, like I said. So we did that. So we had company cars. And then we got to a point where these two branches were not working. The, we were too top heavy in terms of management. And we realized that we had a real problem. We had both, Jeremy and I both had young families. We had uh, two kids each who were very young. We had personal guarantees of our home on our homes, of leases and of bank loans. And basically, we were in real trouble because we were told by our accountants, and we didn't even know what it meant, that, I'm sorry, Jeremy and Jonathan, you two are balance sheet insolvent. Now, anybody's watching this and knows their accounts, they know exactly what that is. It's a real problem. To be fair, even if you don't know exactly what it is, you kind of know what it is. Yeah. So we had to get out of that. Now, how on earth are we going to get out of that? But what was going on in your world at that time i mean what was your level of stress it was incredibly high um because we thought we we're going to lose our homes we'd signed long leases on these uh, on these shopping centers um there weren't leases with break clauses we just thought we could do it so we had to literally beg we had to write to 
directors from Google searches to find the home addresses of these shopping centre landlords to try and say, look, this is us, we've made a mistake, we've got young children, we've got real problems, please, please, please let us out. So it was really scary times. What did it feel like begging? Um, not good, but what else can I do? I've got Could a you, home. Were you sleeping at night? No, it's horrendous. It was horrendous, and it was horrendous for quite a long period of time as well. Impact at home and relationship? Uh, very much so. Um, not so much the relationship because we're kind of together at that point. But it's just, it's so hard because you think you're doing the right things. And I left a good job to start all this. And then it got to a point when I was just thought, I'm going to lose the whole lot here. What was and your I, level of self-doubt like at that point? The self-doubt wasn't there, but the mistakes and problems I'd made, we'd made, were there. And I knew that I had to get out of them. And I was going to get out of them whatever it took. Nothing was going to stop me. I was not going to lose my house. And I was not going to stop being a dad for my two kids. I believe it. I can, I can sense it in what you're saying. But I, I like what you're saying as well. The self-doubt was not there. I, I was fighting. You, are you a fighter? Absolutely. Do you need to be a fighter to succeed? You, you totally do. You have to be very tenacious. You have to be strong. You have to listen. You have to learn from your mistakes. But you've got to be strong. A lot of people could give up at that point. That wasn't an option for me. What, what kind of response were you getting from the banks and the lease? The first kind of response is, please let us out. We've got kids. So, so in terms of the landlords, they didn't reply to us at all. But we knew we got the letters to their home addresses because we sent them special delivery or recorded um, sign for. So they they got them. So Did we you even think about to, going and delivering it yourself? I would have gone. I absolutely would have knocked on doors. Absolutely would because we had all the addresses. Did so you that convince them. Sorry? Did you convince them? We did in the end, but before we got to that point, we had to, we had a special, a special operations bank manager brought in from HSBC, the existing bank manager who believed in me in the first place and said, I can't believe this is happening. So this new guy comes in, we extended the bank loans from 10 years to 20 years. Uh, to make the payments per month less. We had to send cars back that we'd taken out on lease. We had to make two people redundant, which is the worst thing in the world we wanted to do. It was just terrible. Um, and then we did get, eventually, the landlords did agree to let us go, but we had to pay our way out. So what that did then was we, we'd got rid of these bad branches and we'd restructured, but we then couldn't expand at all for three years. So from 2005 to 2008, we were just sat with what we had. Why couldn't, why couldn't you expand? We didn't have the finances. We couldn't borrow any more money to open more branches. Right. That was the reason. Was that frustrating you? I mean, It was frustrating because I you... saw the opportunity in all these other shopping centres. They need a watch lab. They've not got a watch lab. They need a watch lab. Well, look, we know that you've got an eye for seeing opportunities. So even under that, that measures, you're still wanting to grow and expand and all of that, even though you got it wrong first time. Yeah, we carried on networking with with the different landlords and our agent was doing his best. But it was just so difficult to take out a lease when you're not financially strong and your personal guarantees are not, you know, there's too many kind of thing on properties. Did it ever feel like you were going to get out of it? Or did you know you were going to get out of it? Did you know that the good days are going to come again? Um, at, one, at some point, no. I didn't know how to get out of it. I knew I would get out of it. I just didn't know how. Did you ever have to lie to your family? No, I told the family the truth, not the children, because they were little, they had no idea. They were completely protected from it, and so they should have been. Uh, but no, with the... You've, it's amazing, isn't it? When, the, when you don't know, you don't know. No, no. So we knew between ourselves, my brother and I, and, and, and wives, but the rest of the family didn't know, because we, you know, we were proud. We didn't want to admit that we were getting things wrong. Um, you know, it's pride that does happens, come in. That happens, though. I mean, there's, there's, right, there's, there's listeners right now that can relate. 
related. There's people right now that are listening to this conversation that we're having that is in exactly where you were then. Mm. And, you know, going and seeing the families and they're putting on a face. Did you have to do that? Did you, like, Sunday afternoon, I'm making this up, I don't know what... No, it's you know, exactly You go for that. a dinner with your family and you got to put exactly a Exactly that. So the generation above us, so parents and, and aunties and uncles, you know, they're all saying, how's the business going? It looks really good. You've opened there now. You're doing really well. And we'd have to say, we'd have to lie, really, to keep face. We'd say, yeah, no, it's good, it's good, it's good. But we couldn't say, yeah, it's brilliant and we're doing this. We just had to get through it. But we did get through it and that's the main thing. You know thing. what? And I don't know whether this is true or not. They probably knew, you know, they probably knew it was going pretty hard for you. Mm. My dad knows when when it's a bit, hard, bit tough for me and things are going on. He knows. Yeah, they can read, can't they? Yeah, they can. And I take a lot of confidence through, from that. And anyway, there you go. I'm relating to your current situation there. So we're back in this business. You're adamant it's growing. When did, when did the light start to come at the end of the tunnel? When we got out of the two leases and we started to perform well and then we opened another branch and then another branch after that. So three years of no growth at all and then more branches opening and the, the new branches that opened were in the south. We'd moved to Lakeside Shopping Centre, which is a long way away from Preston. This is in Essex. Uh, that worked. So we'd realised that it works in the north of England, the Midlands and then the south. And then we continued the growth. So we also went north as well, further, we went to Glasgow. So we ended up having branches in Glasgow, we had two in Glasgow, one in City Centre Glasgow, one in Silverbridge. What, y- what years was, by the way, for the, for the listeners listening in right now, listen to this story, because I'm about, in about 15, 20 minutes time, I'm going to ask you loads of questions about how to increase the value of a business, how to make sure the business can sell, what to do, how to structure it, what help to get, all that kind of thing. So... What years was this when you were expanding into Glasgow? So Glasgow came in about 2012. So 2005 to 8 was the real struggle time. That was the sad time, the difficult time, the challenging time, brought on by ourselves and mistakes. But we learned from our mistakes and got back. So 2009, unfortunately, I got divorced. That was nothing to do with the, with the business situation, but it ended up me being kind of on my own. But my focus then was on my children, most importantly as ever to me, and my business. How old were your children at that point? They were 11 and 9 when that happened. How did they take it, the divorce and you still being in business? Uh, The young one um, who will be watching this, Hattie, um, she doesn't remember a lot of the kind of the the things, the problems or the issues that that we had as mum and dad. Um, Old one did, Oliver. Um, So, yeah, it it did affect them. But, you know, you just try your best. These things do happen, unfortunately. How old's um, Oliver now? Oliver's now 25, nearly. Right. He's flying high as a digital marketer. There you go. He's in the right industry, isn't he? Absolutely. And Hattie's uh, 23? No, she's 21. 21. Yeah, oh, Oliver's sorry. 23, Hattie's yeah, 21. Yeah. So she's 21 and she's just doing her final year in criminology at Manchester. So they're in a group. Good place. Great place, both of them. There we go. All right. So 2009, uh, divorced. You by yourself. And you had the kids and the business. Yes. And a vision and some energy or, or determination still or what? Absolute determination to not make the mistakes we made before and to continue and roll the, roll the, the How do you out. not make mistakes? 
You know, I say don't think about a blue cup. How do you not make, you know, not making mistakes? What did you learn from those mistakes in the first time round? You can't overpay in rent. You have to have, because we're a service business and in a retail environment. We're not selling things. We're doing things to people's watches. So therefore, we need to, number one, dominate the internet as much as possible back in those days. And number two, be in prime location. So you see this business all the time. When your watch doesn't need repairing, you keep seeing the watch lab, the watch lab, the watch lab. So when you do need it, you think, I'll go to the watch lab. So in terms of learning from mistakes, it's don't overpay and rent. Position within a shopping centre is everything. And we used to try and position ourselves near the retail jewellers because we knew that they were not enjoying the watch repair side of it and not really doing it particularly well. So therefore we were a credible and fast and positive experience and alternative to those the, the, the jewellers that are offering that service or a similar service. All right, so the placement in the shopping centre is, uh, is a big lesson. So is not overpaying on rents. I think the, the big thing I'm getting from you right now is belief. Because even under that extreme amount of adversity, I, I know the outcome of this story. You sold the business for multi-millions. It changed your life and, and your business partner's life. And that was repairing watches. You, you've got determination. You've got resilience. You've got tenacity. There's no doubt about it. All right. So we've going out of 2009 to 2012. What was the next phase? So it was copy the model, like I say, it was to go north and to go south. We needed to know that this phenomenon of repairing watches in that positive way that makes loads of money and looks like it does is not a regional thing. So we need to know that people in, in, in Essex and people in Greater London and, and scaling, Scotland, phase, it's really. scaling, absolute scaling. So that's it. And that's what we did. So we went down, uh, down, up and across to create a network. It feels like a dream for a lot of people. It's like once you've got this, once you've got it working here, Brad Sugars talks about this beautifully in Action Coach. She goes, once you've got it working here, now replicate. And that's essentially what you did. You, you, you got the model and you went. But you do have to use the word replicate. You do have to replicate everything. So if you take in your Tag Heuer watch to a branch in. Woking or Glasgow, you need to hear the same things. It needs to be the same solution as to repairing it. It needs to be the same price, the same time estimates, all that kind yeah. of stuff. So it has to be identical. Our Bible that was written for the Watch Lab was kept to absolutely to the point all the time by all the staff. And when that's whether it's cleaning down the kiosk or the shop at the end of the day to the administration, to the selling of the different watch repairs, to the management of the different watch repairs and, and the, the procedures to posting things to head office to be repaired for servicing, things like that. So the Bible was crucial to I, it. I, I like the, I personally like the word Bible now. I'm just aware that some people might think that that's overly religious or they might... They might be offended by calling it a Bible. What you're referring to is an operations manual. I then, am. Right? So it's an operations manual where all of the systems are all documented. Yes. And you've, it's a little bit, little, little bit like McDonald's, you know, they've got a full system so that you can replicate it. Yes. And that was that a secret ingredient in replicating it? 
Yes, it was. So every branch that opens, we'd have the same tools, the same um, amounts of straps, of spring bars, yeah. of ultrasonic cl- cleaning fluids, uh, the same EPOS till, the same login procedure, the same printer, the same bench mats, the same, just everything was the same. So it was all put in the back of a small van and went to that store and opened in that shop or that kiosk. And within 12, 24 hours, it was identical to existing ones that were elsewhere. Who wrote the Bible? My brother Jeremy did. Oh, he's the, de- yes. the detail I man. started it. He got the detail. He, he rolled it You out. started it. He finished it. Yes. He made it much better. <laughs> so good, te- good teamwork. All right. So uh, he wrote the operations manual. How long did that take? Was it a period of years? It's one of those you, you can't. You have to work it out. You, you've got to action it to make it work. So in the original, I've got the Bible. I'm, I'm atheist. I'm not religious in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but anyway, the operations manual. Um, so you have to write the operation. Write the operations manual. Act upon it. See where it's lacking in detail. Evolve it. Change it. Yeah. Tweak it. Evolve it. So it was a work in progress. Do you know really. what? Again. A lot of people listening, it feels like a dream oh, to have this operations manual. And a lot of people do what you did. They start it. And they don't finish it. But you had a secret weapon. You had your brother-in-law. Brother, yeah. It, that was your brother, not your brother-in-law. Brother. All right, so you had your brother in the business who was the finisher. Yes. Nice. Yes. So your brother was a detailed person that's documenting the whole systems. Yes. Is that a good recommendation to the entrepreneurs and the starters on the call i think what i would say and i do say this to to potential people i'm talking to with businesses um all the bits that you're not good at get somebody else to do them because you can't when i started i was the entrepreneur i was the vision i was the person with the passion i had i I could see what's going to happen but i couldn't repair watches so i bought a watchmaker in and I had to. But you were first and then the I office, realized you were last out at night, seven till seven, yeah. each day, yeah. seven days a week. Yeah. But I also realized quite quickly that I'm not very good with accounts and figures. So we had to take an accounts manager on quite quickly as well. But again, you know, you can't, as an entrepreneur, you can't be expected and you shouldn't expect yourself or put pressure on yourself to be able to be excellent at all parts of what you do. It just doesn't work like that. As long as you're overseeing all the other parts and you get the best people you can do to those particular bits. So our accounts manager couldn't repair watches. Did you have to learn that the hard way, though? Because it sounds nice in hindsight now, what you're saying. So, you know, find out what you're good at and do what you're good at and get everybody else to do everything else. Yeah. Did you try and do the finances for a bit? Um, Yes. And I realized that quite soon that it wasn't for me. So I and how, also how, is, how soon is quite soon within two or three months. Well, but that's also good I, then. But also, if I'm doing the finances, and I'm spending 10, 15, 20 hours a week doing the finances for two or three branches, then that's ten or twenty hours a week that I'm not front of house driving the business or networking the other shopping centre managers and things like that. So it's aces in their places. That's what we used to call it. I quite like that. Aces in their places. Get yeah. your aces. So get A players. Yes. The the aces. Yes. Get A pl- get A players in your business and keep them in their places. Absolutely right. Aces in their places. Another thing we learnt as well, because there were other watch repairers in the UK before we started, but not doing what we did and not doing it the way we did. But what they used to do is take watchmakers, which are trained, qualified, technical people, 
to be front of house. Now, a trained, qualified watchmaker doesn't have uh, front of house skills. They're very much introverted. It's all about doing this and working on watches. They're not eye contact. They're not sales. They're not passion. They're not big meets and greets. They're not that. So that's what they were doing. So they were putting the technical people in front of house. Our solution was to get great people with great personality that could sell to be front of house, teach them the basics of repairs and all the highly technical stuff, get the watchmakers to do it, and the watchmakers would never see a customer. And that's how it worked, and it was the right thing to do. Great model. Yeah. All right, then you came to a magical phase when you started to actually think about exiting. Yes. What year did you start thinking about exiting, and what year did you actually exit? So we thought about it in 2015, because at that point we had... 16 branches and all of the branches were working and every branch that we opened was profitable within three months and had been for three or four years so if you look at the growth curves and the graphs it's good 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 at that point we'd also paid off all the bank loans so we were debt free and we had uh, like i say the key location shopping centers famous shopping center we went to we we tried to get into really good shopping centers to be noticed as a brand we're in brent costume shopping center which is the first out of town bottom of the m1 we went to lakeside shopping center went to blue water shopping center went to buchanan galleries in glasgow they're all key locations where other people potential buyers would notice this brand and that's what we wanted to do so that was actually part of your it was part exit of process. Plan. absolutely it was did you did you write did you document an exit plan? I mean, it's um, one thing that we do with business owners all of the time in the action coach. We didn't. All all I knew is that from the start, I told my wife at the time. I said, "I am going to start a business. It's going to be this. I'm going to grow it to a national chain, and I'm going to exit. And when I do exit, I'm going to buy a Ferrari." It took a lot longer that than I thought at first thought it would do. A lot more trouble on the way, but I didn't buy the Ferrari in the end. You didn't. I'm going to ask you what you did buy at the end in a second because I've got a sneaky suspicion I've seen it on a picture okay. online. Uh, all right, so how did you sell the business? So Jeremy and I, brother and I, decided that because we were at this point where we'd done it for 16 years, the business was now a national chain in terms of locations, pretty much everywhere we'd want it to be. Yeah. So it get noticed. And like I said, we paid all the debts off. We decided that there must be somebody would wish to buy a business like this because it's niche, it's unique, it hasn't been copied and it's making a lot of money and it's in the prestigious watch kind of industry. So we decided to explore the market in terms of who would wish to buy it and we lined up four corporate finance houses. So corporate finance, nobody really understands that word, those two words, but they are the companies that help businesses exit. They're the ones that find buyers. They basically sell your business for you. Right. So we lined up four, and of those four, we chose the one that we went with, um, and that's how the process started. So it started in 2015, and we sold in 2016. It took 14 months, and then Jeremy and I stayed in for a two-year earnout, and we left in 2018. I was 51, Jeremy was 49. And you, what multiple did you sell for? I'm, allowed to, I'm not going to ask you exactly how much you sold for. I know that you got several millions each. It's yeah, it's it's not something really to talk about because it's like a private business. Okay, it's not on the internet or anything like that. But it was good. It was really good. We we're really pleased. And but it took fourteen months to sell. Did you ever doubt that it was going to sell during them fourteen months? Um, 
the, you do you, you do get to a point when you think this is going to be too good. You know, am I really going to be this person yeah. that's looking like it? Is it really going to happen? Am I really going to pay my mortgage off? Uh, am I really going to kind of not be able to have to work all these hours again? So you do doubt the process, but the process with the company that we went for was managed all the way through. Are you, are you allowed to say the company? The, the, yeah, absolutely. Go on then. So the company I worked for was called B. Sorry, that we sold us called BCMS. BCMS is a business in corporate finance, and they are owned by the Rebets family. Yeah. And there's another division which is um, sorry, BCMS is owned by the Rebets family and the shareholders. It's, it's yeah. a, um, but there's another one called Kingsbrook as well. So it's two, basically two businesses from one family. Yeah, and look, BCMS, Kingsbrook, they helped change your life there. And you did eventually sell it after 14 months. Yes. You got to pay off the mortgage. Yes. And you got to buy yourself some new toys. Yes. What toys did you buy? Um, so when we first kind of got the confirmation of the earnout figure which was um, we'd hoped it was going to be. So basically, you sell, you get a lump up sum up yeah. front in 2016, which we got. And then there's another lump, which is not as big as the first one, but it's subject to this, 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 and this. Yeah. And if you get those right, then you get the second payout. And now the second payout, if I was going to get that, I was going to buy myself a supercar. The Ferrari, yeah? Didn't go for the Ferrari because I prefer another brand. So... Just what within a week of the of retiring at 2016, I bought a Lamborghini Huracan Avio. What colour? Uh, the first one, I've had two. The first one was dark green and it had an offset orange stripe down the centre. Are you a bad boy? I was a very noisy boy. <laughs> You've gone for the real sort of fast and furious, eh? Yes. Complete madness. So I thought it was yellow, but it was the green one. So, so the green one was first. Yeah, yeah. And then impulsively, after a year of having that one, it was having a service in Lamborghini Manchester, and I <laughs> exchanged it, protested it for another one, the newer version. All right. You didn't just buy cars, though. You also moved up to Lake Windermere. Yeah, so when we first sold, I moved to Lytham. So I bought a, a bigger house in Lytham St. Anne's, which is on the Fowl Coast. And we also bought a, a cottage in, in Bonas on Windermere, which is fantastic. Um, so we spent a lot of time up there and still do, and that's great. Is that where you go to relax? Yes, escapism. Lake District, beautiful place. Fabulous. So it's a dream. I mean, the, the dream is kind of coming true, but then you got bored. I did. So after that, and doing all these crazy things like you do, so after four years, I realised that I was far too driven to continue just doing that. Four years, yeah? So I've left the world of the fast cars, been there, seen it, done it, don't feel the need to keep keep having those kind of things, which is great. Um, and I'm now... Is it true, by the way, you know that when you get in that... Well, it can't be true, the first car, because you bought a second one. When did you realise that the cars weren't doing it for you? Well, the cars were doing it for me, but I knew that they weren't doing it for me enough to continue. So I just felt I, I, I never planned to have a supercar forever. It was never like that. So I had a, I had two cars over a period of four years. That's what it was. Right. So, but yes, so I got bored. So I thought, what do I want to do now? Because I'm bored. So I could start another business. Couldn't really be bothered if I'm honest with you. I was offered quite a few NED kind of roles. And also business development roles for kind of friends, companies. Yeah, because you were always in business development anyway. Exactly. Yes. That was your yes, it was. side of the business. It was. But the one thing that truly appealed to me, and which is what I do now, is to work for the broker that sold my business. 
So I now work for Kingsbrook and I work for Kingsbrook because I want access to help entrepreneurs exit their businesses, but not just exit their businesses, exit for maximum value. Because the way that we at Kingsbrook do it, and I've experienced it firsthand because I've been there, seen it and done it, is, is by, it's very different to the rest. So the research that happens to find potential buyers with Kingsbrook and with BCMS is much deeper. It's global. We look for great companies that could um, take this business as a complementary business. We look for people or bodies with deeper pockets than this business. Yep. And we want, we, we want companies that want this business to do things with it. And what it means is we turn the mindset, and this is what I absolutely love about it, we turn the mindset from, I want this company, I want to buy this company for as cheap as I can, to I want this company and I don't want anybody else to have it and I've got great plans for this business. And that's the mindset that we can change and it happens. So therefore, the business that we take on absolutely exit for maximum value and they're not all the same. Which is what they did for you. Yeah. Which is a nice story, isn't it? Mm. You know, they impacted you so much. Now you want to help other people do exactly the same. Some some really important questions now coming up. Because people listening to this, they want to sell their business for maximum value. They want to exit the business and get serious wealth, just like you. And then have the choice to contribute back. So what increases the price of someone's business? Oh, there's many things that increase. First of all, it has to be run well. I see a lot of businesses that are very profitable mm. in a niche sector, but they're not run that well. And we work closely with Action Coach, which is, as you know, is, is, is kind of part of why we're doing yeah. this. And I see, and, and I truly understand action business coaching and Action Coach. And what I see is that Action Coach, the brands, the systems bring to businesses things that businesses don't have well, and can't see what they need as well. You know the Bible that you talked about, the operations yes. manual? Yeah, a lot of the Action Coaches, they get you to do that on the first day of them coaching you. You, you start building that literally from that day so it can become replicable in the future. So, yeah, it was resonating as you were saying it. All right. So what else increases the value of someone's business? So number one, it's run well. So just going back to that point, number one, it's run, run well. So I deal with a lot of action coaches who have clients and their clients always talk about amazing action coaches and they wouldn't leave them. So that's really important. So if you've got a business that is, you know, you, you yeah. need some help, some guidance, invest in coaching because it pays dividends. Yeah, you really, you are really passionate about it. I am because I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. seen it. You, by the way, he says this all of the time. He's so passionate about selling a business and doing it properly. All right, so... Look, it's got to be run well. Okay, so yeah, it's got to be run well. You need to protect everything you can in terms of um, uh, trademarking and intellectual property and things like that. So that, that can easily be missed, though, can't it? It can. It can protect I, I, everything. Yeah, and I know people that can help with that as well. But there are so many things that you could protect or businesses can protect that they don't realise. You should look into it. All parts of your business, what can I protect? What can I trademark? What can I make mine as intellectual property? What can I register? That's really important. Um, adding value systems, again, it could be a coaching thing, but you need the correct systems in, in place. Yep. And they have to be followed through. You know, there's, there's got to, you've got to be quite tough about that. Um, what other questions do you have? Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to brainstorm what's going to increase the value of my business here. Um, so it's, it's run well. We're protecting everything. We're getting the trademarks in place. We've got the correct systems in place. I'm guessing that 
we've got to have a good financial history because you said you cleared your debts yes type thing yeah that's important to be financially free if you can be um can you sell even if you've got debts you can but you're more likely to sell for a higher value if you're not debt free but not a lot of debts that's what people really want because debts can be paid off yeah uh but it needs to be not heavy not heavily laden with debts got it um anything else that increases the what about the the traits of the owner does that affect the sale well the culture has to be there and you have to recruit correctly in my opinion to have that same culture you can't have bad people if you have a bad person in your business and you know it and everybody else knows it do something about it and do something about it quickly because that becomes a rotting thing the culture is really affected so if you know somebody's not right for your business do something about it and do it quickly. Be strong. Do it quickly. Okay. So would you say these are the the common traits of a business that sell for multi-millions? And you feel free to summarize it back. This run well with the correct systems. You've got the right things protected. You've got the right culture in place that's that the, that the owner or the leader put in place. And we've got history of financial strength with you know, as small amount of debt as possible. Mm. Yep. Uh, marketing marketing is everything and now of course it's social media marketing as well as dominating google right your website has to be great social footprint website's got to be great it's got to be up to date as well a great website that's four years old will not perform like it should do now needs to be changed or tweaked or renewed there's a book called the 48 laws of power and one of the laws in that in that book is about reputation and it's about guarding the reputation with your life all right so which you made me think about when you said social footprint and website up to date how important is your reputation when it comes to selling the business your brand is completely and utterly everything uh, reviews are everything you need to be chase reviews chase positive reviews um you've got to be very open and and, and honest and uh, you know, free and say what how things are. If there's a problem and it's seen, there's a bit of a problem online. Deal with it publicly. Do what you need to do to put it to bed. It's brand is absolutely everything. Reputation is everything, because any potential buyer that goes to buy your business, they will do all of this yeah, yeah. and more in their prejudice. No, there's a lot of creative businesses out there now, yeah. And if you're an influencer, listen to listen to this answer very carefully. I don't know which way you're going to go on this. So, because there's a lot of creators that have got massive followers, they've built a huge following. It's all built around them, like Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast is a YouTuber. He's got 200 million subscribers on YouTube, but it's all built around him. He's a huge influencer. Is that sellable? Um, well, he is sellable. Clearly, but if there's an issue with him or he gets something wrong, his viewers can drop off, can't they, hugely? So if the business is built around you too much, does that that impact what the business is worth? 
yeah, of course it does. And also w- with clients, which come back to a minute in terms of numbers of clients and percentage of turnover and profitability from clients. So yeah, with my brother and I, we built the business not to rely on us. We couldn't be in Glasgow and in Essex at the same time. Neither should we be. So we made sure that the systems were in place, that it was that. So it wasn't the Barker Brothers watch repairs. It was never the name of the door. It's called the Watch Lab, and it was that for a reason. And in terms of clients, so if you've got a great business that turns over X amounts and makes X amounts, but 70% of your sales come from Amazon, for example, that's not a valuable business because Amazon can drop it like that. You need the mix of clients um, to be not those kind of proportions. 20%, 30% from one client, okay, but the, right. the, it just needs to be a, De- a balance. All right, so we need to decrease the customer, de-risk the customer base Correct. as well. So we're not overly dependent on one or two customers. Yes. I mean, the other thing that you said in there was gold dust, really. Um, if you name your business after yourself, it becomes a bit harder to sell the business. You know, Barker Brothers would have been a lot harder to sell than the Watch Lab. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, who wants somebody's name? Is that name? ego? Is that all ego? I think it probably is ego if you do it that way. Uh, it doesn't need to be like that. So for, with us, it's just a brand name that could work, and we did trademark it as well. How would you grow more and more multiples if you are an influencer and it is built around you? How would you grow that business? Because we're in an influencer age here. There's people out there right now, there's probably people in these studios here that's building a business, and it's just it's all about them. How do you? How do they build a business to sell in the future? Um, it's a great question, and I haven't got the answers to that. Um, we're in an influencer age. We are. Well, and, when we sold it, it wasn't as strong as it is right now, but it is very much the case. So, yeah, if you've got X million followers, you're very valuable, but you step one thing, one foot out of line or make one mistake, well, it just goes. The value of your brand goes, doesn't it? Joe Rogan. Very famous podcaster, you know, the first podcast, the huge, biggest podcast in the world, Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan show, you know, he's had Elon Musk on God knows how many times and all, all, all the biggest of the biggest. He sold the podcast and it, that was named after him. But he's still running the podcast. You know, he's probably on an earn out like you, like you're on an earn out, but technically it's almost like Someone's bought it, but they're sponsoring it or something like that, really, because he's still doing it. Yeah, if is gonna, that how an influencer could do it? If you're going to buy the brands, part of it is the influencer will absolutely, without a doubt, have to stay on for periods of three, five years. So they, they wouldn't buy it if the influencer's going to walk away. And which you know. is really important information for the influencers that are listening to this right now. So it, it might there might be startup, there might be pre-following you know make a decision because if if this is going to be built around you you might need to sell it with you in it i think you will need to sell you with it and for a period of time afterwards as well yeah and therefore getting the timings right of selling businesses is really important as well so whether you've got 200 million followers or or 50 million followers you know anything could change you know that sector could change you could make a mistake somebody could have a, a mission against you kind of thing to spoil your brands so just the timing of selling any business is really important. It, you know, it can be now, it can be soon, but also you can miss the boat. I reckon that some influencers might want to do that because they might just love what they do. You know, like Joe Rogan. Yeah, I'll keep doing the podcast for you. Mm. 
can pay me a hundred million dollars for you know if you buy it off me you can be, be yours i'll keep it in the podcast for you because he probably loves what he's doing mm. no i'm second guessing that so i don't joe rogan if you're watching no offense no offense meant there um any right so i want to talk about exit plan mm. because you had this intention to exit 2015 15. i think you said yeah and you sold in 2016 oh walked away at 20 in 2018 Right, so you didn't have the intention to exit before that? Or? I think with hindsight, if we had the opportunity of leaving straight away, we would have done. But part of the deal would be, we will buy your business for this amount of money, um, but we need you to stay on for X period of time and achieve certain amounts, and then we can replicate what you do. And then when you do go, if you choose to go, then we've got the perfect thing. That's kind of how it works. Right. And did you develop a... you you? Did you develop a good relationship with the buyers? Yeah, we did. So we sold to Watcher Switzerland Group. So the watchdog was bought by Watcher Switzerland Group. Watcher Switzerland Group is the biggest retailer in the world of brands like Rolex, Cartier, Patek Philippe. They have the Goldsmiths chain. They have Mappen and Webb, which is the King's jeweler. And they have Watcher Switzerland stores. So the watch lab doing watch repairs was the perfect fit for that brand. That's what they did. So they bought us because they didn't have anything like that. And then over the period of two years, they had their people in and around us all the time to learn what we did and how we did it. So that when we did walk away, they were in the position of strength to continue with the brand. Did any perk? Did you get any perks with the job? You know, the protect for leaps and all this, like, <laughs> you know. I'm guessing you've been through a number of watches yourself. And yeah. You know, like you've had the cars, you've had the watches. Yeah. So during that two-year earnout, we were directors of Watcher Switzerland Group, which, which was fantastic. I know a lot of watch collectors. You know, we, I, I coach some people myself, and like one person standing out, Danny. Uh, he, he was he's really successful. He's earned a lot of money himself. He's you know built an incredible business himself. Now, one thing that was on his booklet bucket list was a Patek Philippe. You know, and his wife was like, "Why do you need that?" but he wanted it (laughs) he wanted it you know and he he went through all sorts of cartwheels emotionally should i justify you know putting all of all of those thousands of pounds in into it but he went out and bought it and you know what when he when he got it he got the patek philippe he he felt like he just rewarded himself and he'd achieved it Mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes it's a matter of ticking it off i know you had the four four years with the cars was it a matter of ticking it off it was much ticking off, and that's why I'm not doing it now. And the watches are great, but all they do is tell the time, don't they? That they are, you know, a piece of jewellery. They're brands. They're relatable. You feel great when you look down at this watch, but you can do. But they are just watches. They're just for telling the time. They're no different to your phone in in terms of that. Uh, but it's nice to have nice things in life, isn't it? Whether it's a car or a house or a home or a holiday or a watch or a piece of jewellery, it's just we all aspire to have things to better ourselves, don't we? Got some, got some quick questions for you here. What's the best book you've ever read? Um, I'm not a huge book reader. Um, I've read Stephen Bartlett's latest one. Yeah, that's very good. He's a great guy. Yeah, he, he's amazing. he's amazing. We saw him at Action Coach. Uh, sorry, at BizX last year. Yeah, speaking for Action Coach on behalf of Action. And Coach. what a guy! What you know, he, he spoke on stage straight from the heart. Ooh, young. Yeah, knows his stuff. Incredible. Yeah. 
No, he's great. He's 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 an amazing person. He's like an orator, isn't he? He's just the way yeah. you feel. I mean, when when I heard him speak, you could hear a pin drop in the room. Nobody else was talking or coughing or anything. It was just amazing. If there was three bits of advice that you would give to business owners or business leaders that are responsible for growing a business properly, three bits of advice to 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 really get this business to a sellable state that's potentially life-changing if they choose to sell it, what, what would the advice be? The advice would be to make sure it's profitable continuously. For how long? For a period of three and five years or more. But the growth patterns, nobody, biz, uh, potential buyers don't want businesses that are doing this. They want businesses that are showing growth. Does it have to be three, five years? What, I, what if it was two? I know I'm challenging back. Depends on the sector, doesn't it? If it's two and it's in uh, the techie sector, excuse me. Yeah, fast growth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so get it into a profitable state for, for a long period of time, <coughs> for a long duration, all right? Um, what else? Um, believe in yourself. Uh, don't be put off by the naysayers. Be tenacious. Have the drive. Never give up. Uh, be super, super strong. You've got that, haven't you? Yes. You've got it. So. Um, what was your <clears throat> lowest point? What was your lowest point when you really looked in the mirror and questioned yourself? It was when we were about to lose the houses or close to, <clears throat> which was in 2005. That was scary. And it felt undeserved, but it wasn't. It was our mistakes. You know, we made the mistakes. We chose the wrong places. We signed up on the leases. Did um, you ever cry? Yeah, quite a lot. Quite a lot. By yourself or in front of others? Um, in front of my wife a bit, on my own sometimes. But I didn't cry for long because when you do cry, it's an emotion that you have to get out. And you do. But you go and then shit yourself and say, sort it out, sort it out. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Just sort it out. So, yeah, did you did, have that but... level of self-talk going on, that determination self-talk that you just expressed now? Yes. What's the highest point? The sale? The sale or the, the Lamborghini? The highest point, <clears throat> no, the highest point was the sale, to realise that we've built a business that was wanted by the biggest retailer of all those brands in the world. Excuse me. Pretty, pretty incredible. You know, I, I think one of my favourite bits has just been kind of listening to the whole story more than anything you know and the level of belief and determination that's required in the in the most challenging points mm. you that never waned from you never give up never ever give up that that's probably my favorite bit you know i just like the it's like a, a disney movie you know we start good it goes down into the and for a long period of time how long was that that business how many, 15 years? 15 years in total. Three years of doom and gloom and scare during that period. <clears throat> and you know, Action Coach, they, on average, it takes between three and five years to get the business properly working and growing and maybe even scaling without the owner. Years five to seven become more about wealth creation. So it's probably double the time, uh, twice as quick as, as what, what it was for you there. Yeah. We didn't have a coach. We were never offered coaching. Now I know what I know about coaching, business coaching. If I'd been approached by a coach who could tell me that if you do this, this and this, you'll have a lot more time with your family, you'll make better decisions. And the coaching thing that I've seen with Action Coach, they don't tell you how to run your business. They challenge you and you come out with the answers. 
and then you act to one because it's your decision, your 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 kind of thing. I think it's a, I think it's a real blend of both. Really, I think it's those coaching skills and and a structured kind of transactional model of really growing a business. So I think I think they've got both of that going on there. What's been your your favourite bit of this conversation? Um, reliving the journey, if I'm honest with you, it was fantastic. I loved it. I'm very proud of it. Um, I'm somebody who went to private school, uh, <laughs> primary and high school, and came out with no qualifications whatsoever. I was the uh, the, the the troublesome one in the family. Um, but I, uh, my mother was an entrepreneur. She was very you know driven, and I think I've got a lot from her. So, mum, if you're watching this, thank you. Um, but no, it's great. So yeah, I mean, I had I had a, a potentially great start. I had a rocky kind of journey in childhood. Um, but I had this, I came up with this incredible belief in tenacity and also get to get on with people as well. I get on with everybody. I think that's really important because everybody and anybody you meet in your journey, you will meet them again at some point. And what's really remarkable is now you're helping others do it through Kingsbrook and BSMS that helped you achieve this life changing situation. That's exactly what I'm doing. Geoffrey Barkett, thank you very much. Thank you.